Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Click to go live, and we are live. Hi, Primal Endurance people. I had so much fun on Facebook Live with Dr. Lindsay Taylor last week, I thought I'd go live while recording a routine Primal Endurance Q&A podcast. Send me your questions and we will hit them in real time, or I'll be covering some stuff in the vault and see what's up. I just read what I just wrote because when you get somebody live, you never know. Are they just a big show? Are they prepared to do something on the spot? Maybe a freestyle rap? Don't give me that crap. I'm here to learn about endurance. So let's hit the questions. Actually, this is like some more back and forth. I'm looking in my question vault and seeing the really cool stuff from David Lapp, one of our finest contributors. You've heard about him on some other shows. And he wrote me uh, continuing uh, with his uh, previous messages. He was talking about the enjoyable article on Mark's Daily Apple called The Maybe Not So Definitive Guide to Cold Therapy. All of it makes a lot of sense to me. I will now avoid cold therapy immediately following workouts. So if you didn't read that post, go look at it and also search on YouTube for my viral video with over 3,000 views now or something. Let's try to get that up to 30,000, shall we? Send it along. It was the um, Brad Kern's chest freezer cold plunge. And I talk about how to get set up with the ultimate in cold water therapy, the chest freezer, skip all the intermediate steps that are such a hassle, buying bags of ice at the store and coming home and putting them in your bathtub. No, no, no. Go big time on this. It's going to change your life. Uh, But for the meantime, you can look at the video and also read the informative post on Mark's Daily Apple. Uh, We worked very hard on this and pulled up a bunch of research, but Cold therapy is really uh, hot stuff now. Okay, so uh, one of the points that came out of the article and the research is that for many years, we've had a mistaken notion about how to best use cold therapy. In particular, it may not be a great idea to jump into cold water or cold chamber, whatever you have, right after workouts. Because when you uh, interrupt that inflammatory process, that elevated body temperature after workout, you could compromise some of the intended effects, some of the intended training adaptations that occur when you allow the inflammatory process to play out and force your body to recalibrate to homeostasis after you've done a workout that puts you in that inflamed, elevated body temperature state. So very interesting. And here's the thing. Oh, it feels great to go expose yourself to cold right after the workout because you're hot and stiff and tired and you get sort of that refreshing central nervous system boost that we talk about so extensively in the article and on my video. So it feels great to jump in cold after workout, but it could interrupt the training process. Now, if you're doing the Tour de France and you have to get up and recover the very next day and have another race, hey, that might be a good idea to get things going and kind of uh, speed up the recovery process accordingly. But if you're trying to do a workout to improve your fitness, to build, build, build toward a peak goal event uh, at some later date, maybe it's best to wait at least a couple hours, maybe more, and do your cold exposure away from the training stimulus. Dr. Kelly Starrett told me this uh, with great emphasis. So a lot of people are 
figuring out the very best use of cold therapy, not necessarily what we've always thought it was. Oh my gosh, I remember coming back from uh, evening adult league basketball games in the winter, and I'm way, way over my head with these young guys. I'm trying to just stay in shape. I never was a basketball player, but I loved it. I was coaching my son's team. So I wanted to mix it up myself instead of dominating those fifth and sixth graders. It was actually a suggestion by my son that I join my own league <laughs> so that I could uh, quit embarrassing him with my incredible midair fakes and moves while I'm playing uh, in the scrimmage time uh, with the fifth graders. So I did have a lot of fun there. Uh, but man, my legs would just be aching on fire after these basketball games. It's so different from uh, being in shape for endurance. There's nothing like being in basketball shape. And so I'd go into the swimming pool next door, unheated wintertime swimming pool, water temperature in the 40s. And uh, I'd put my legs in there. I'd wear a parka on top because it was so cold and then get my legs in there. And I'd get out and my legs felt like, oh, they felt brand new, like someone else's. There was none of that pain sensation anymore. But this is exactly what we're talking about, where we're trying to get fitter and allow that inflammation to play out. Uh, when you expose yourself to cold right after workouts, you also interfere with lymphatic function. The, the lymphatic system, along with the blood circulation system, is trying to remove toxins from damaged tissues. And when you freeze up, the lymphatic system stops working as well. So uh, interesting stuff. Read more about it. And David Lapp also writes... Uh, about the other commentary that was thrown in there where um, some of these uh, cutting-edge athletes and trainers are reconsidering a lot of other therapeutic elements of the recovery process, including foam rolling, including massage, including stretching itself. In other words, they want to feel tight and stiff after workouts, and there's a thinking, a philosophy that maybe when you lay down and roll out all the muscles that you just worked, you could be unwinding some of the intended benefits of the workout. Uh, McNaughton said this, and he was quoted in the uh, cold therapy article. Now, uh, we want to get a little bit of clarification here because if you have tight spots, potential areas of injury uh, that you've been uh, fighting with for a long time, I'm going to advocate that the lacrosse ball and the foam rolling and all that stuff is going to be helpful and help you keep uh, away from those negative spirals where uh, everyone knows what it's like to uh, develop that IT band syndrome where it gets uh, a little tight and then a little worse and then a little worse. And then you're feeling it during just normal everyday life instead of just during workouts. And the rollers are uh, known to have a great benefit to kind of uh, unwind those adhesions and keep you out of trouble. Um, and that was, um, now I'm looking at my written response saying the same kind of stuff. So just riffing on it here. But uh, the other thing that I wanted to point out was if you're one of these athletes that is needing 45 minutes of rollout every single night just to keep your back loose or just to keep those quads and that IT band from blowing up, then I'm going to speculate that we have a problem. We have an overtraining or a chronic exercise pattern where if you're constantly stiff and sore and needing all these therapeutics like uh, massage therapy once, twice, three times a week. I'm not saying a lot of people in this category, but people are rolling out every single night and constantly battling stiffness and tightness. That's an indication that your training program is too stressful. Uh, Maffetone said this also in the videos on the Primal Endurance Mastery course that there shouldn't be a big need to stretch unless you're overtraining. That's paraphrasing, but it was a very interesting point where 
we do all these elaborate rituals that we're told to uh, to keep our body uh, you know functional. But what if we're pushing it too hard in the first place where the muscles shouldn't need to be stretched and stretched again and stretched before and stretched during and stretched after? That means they're still damaged and still tight from previous training sessions and that recovery or reduced training uh, degree of difficulty is warranted. Oh, another thing about the IT band. I think I got this from Kimmy and Don, the uh, experts with the yoga ball therapy. They have a studio uh, in Culver City and do wonderful work there, emphasizing the different sizes of balls. Um, and what they said was, we think about this rollout of the IT band all the time. It's like the most popular place to roll up and down on the side of your leg to loosen up the IT band. Uh, but they pointed out that the human IT band is one of the strongest areas, the strongest fascia in the body. It's capable, apparently, <laughs> studies show, it's capable of like pulling a truck. You know, it can pull... 2,000 pounds of force. It can handle that much force. So the idea is that rolling that thing out is never going to really get it done because it's so tight and so densely uh, wound with the fibers that you're just a kind, of, kind of fighting a losing battle there. And there's no need to try to loosen that thing up. It's designed to be super taut and tense. However, when we experience those difficulties in that problem area, what you really want to strive to do is break up the adhesions between the IT band and the nearby quadriceps muscle or the hamstring muscle on the backside. And so when those things kind of get tight and dense, tense, tense and dense, uh, what's happening is um, you, you, you're creating the problem because the muscles aren't working well, they're not uh, firing properly, and everything's getting to be a real tight spot, a problem spot. So when you're working the IT band, work on the edges where you're really working the quad slash IT band adhesion rather than straight up and down and back and forth on this super taut band. Interesting. All right. Uh, here's more from Lap. He says, I first started math training after reading Maffetone's book about three years ago. I thought I was in pretty good shape. I decided to add, add five heartbeats to get up to 138. And then I listened to you guys on a podcast and Dr. Mark Cucuzella as well. Um, recommending that there's not that big need to constantly push up to the highest possible advocated heart rate or bargain for adding those five beats. And so he put it back down to 130. Um, yesterday, David writes, I did a run at an average heart rate of 122. Three years ago on the same run at the same speed, I could not keep it under 140 without lots of walking. This is a great thing. I'm choosing now to run most of the time well below my math, except for hills where I slow down or walk to keep it right under math. I know it's frustrating for many of your listeners, and it was for me too, but I find it much more relaxing to run well below my math, and I'm running at least as fast as a few years ago. And guess what? He's actually getting older too. So that's an amazing insight there that just by being patient, you can improve your speed even if you're at those lower heart rates. Your body really likes to function uh, at those low heart rates, burn fat comfortably, not introduce that stressful element to your training that yes, definitely you're gonna get when you're doing a high intensity workout, interval workout, time trial, race, or what have you. But for baseline training and building your aerobic system become, to become more and more efficient, why not take it down 10 or 15 beats below math and see what happens? I wrote an article about this on my blog as well, where I just at under one 
body heart rate to the extent that I was jogging along rather than jog walking. And so that's the ultimate indicator of progress is that you're performing competently at those low, low heart rates. This is vastly more predictive of your racing success than doing time trials and blasting yourself and seeing how fast you can bicycle for 10 miles at regular intervals throughout the training process because there's so many other factors when you're, when you're digging deep, uh, but it's not indicative of uh, that continued aerobic development, which is really the foundation for improvement uh, in aerobic events. Okay, and back to David's letter. I still don't know whether fat adaptation is the reason for the improvement or if it's the math training. And he's talking about his dietary patterns contributing to that. I guess it really doesn't matter. Yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> you're, you're getting better, so you're getting better. But with all the research coming, and especially the great work uh, intensely and chronicled in detail by Dr. Peter Atia and Sammy Inkinen, where you can look on their blogs, I think uh, Atia's is called eatingacademy.com, or you can just find him on Google, and then sammyinkinen.com, where they went into laboratory and peddled at a certain uh, exact wattage output on the bicycle, an exact energy output that was quantified, and then measured the ratio of different fuels that they're burning uh, during the effort uh, and transitioning over a very short time, relatively short time of uh, six weeks or something like that. They go from burning mostly carbohydrate to burning mostly fat, an absolute flip-flop of the fuel substrate utilization is the fancy word to talk about what percentage of carbs or percentage of fat they're burning. And so the idea of being able to do that through dietary transformation, irrespective of training differences and doing longer runs or doing something else to become fat adapted, that's pretty powerful stuff. And uh, Sammy writes about how he indeed did not change his training. He just changed his diet and then altered this figure that he calls the theoretical time to bonk. And what that means is if you continued at that comfortable pace of 200 watts for a fit athlete like Sammy, that's uh, cruising along at perhaps uh, 15, 16, 17 miles an hour on the flat road. So it's a pace that he could carry on for a long time. But uh, monitoring that substrate utilization, figuring out how many calories of uh, glucose per minute or per hour he's burning, they can calculate when he would run out of energy, assuming he's not taking any back for the purposes of the experiment. He's not ingesting any. So his theoretical time to bonk when he was a sugar burner was 5.6 hours, something like that. You can read about it in Primal Endurance or on his website. And when he became a fat-adapted athlete through that dietary transformation of getting rid of sugars and grains, he changed his theoretical time to bonk from 5.6 hours to 86 hours. What that meant was that he was so good at burning fat that he could theoretically carry on without needing much glucose, and he had enough glucose uh, in storage to go for 86 hours, but only five hours again when he was burning up glucose at a high rate. So that has a profound impact on all your workouts, your ability to recover from workouts, and as we talk about a little bit in the Keto Reset Diet, even an explosive power strength athlete will have a wonderful advantage because, because they are burning less sugar on the stair climb up to the gym. They're burning less sugar during the warm-up on the exercise bike and all those great things are clicking in so that they uh, can recover faster afterward because they're not just blasting all the, uh, the sugar. Interesting stuff. 
Now, let's get to another person. Had great uh, commentary from David. Thank you so much. Oh, Scar- sorry, has another couple lines. I followed your recent green smoothie morning routine with great interest. Been doing that some. Some days I'm just not hungry and I don't eat until after my morning workout, which is usually a two-hour bike ride or a long swim in the pool. And I don't, I'm not hungry. So in other words, just uh, mixing in that experiment that I've been talking about on a lot of shows where some days I'll start with a super nutrition morning green smoothie. You can look up that on YouTube as well. Get that puppy viral. I'm talking about all the different agents I put in there to help with athletic peak performance and recovery, especially as an old guy trying to do young guy stuff. So I'm a great advocate of that. And then other days you get those wonderful benefits of fasting and having the uh, enhanced cellular repair. They call it autophagy and just getting better and better and more refined at fat burning because you're not constantly consuming food. Also really enjoying the uh, increasingly prominent uh, research of Dr. Sachin Panda down at UC San Diego with time-restricted eating and the digestive circadian rhythm. And his big takeaway points are that you should eat in a uh, maximum, uh, I mean, excuse me, a minimum time window of 12 hours. So you should get all your eating done in 12 hours and not be eating outside of a 12-hour window uh, corresponding with your uh, uh, wake and sleep cycles. And this is any type of xenobiotic substance that's ingested. So it doesn't have to be caloric. When you take your first sip of coffee at 6.30 in the morning or even an herbal tea or swallow a vitamin pill, anything that turns on the digestive system also turns on your digestive circadian clock. And we want that thing to turn off to facilitate a good night's sleep and insulin sensitivity and all these benefits. We want that thing to turn off a maximum of 12 hours later. Okay, so striving to keep your caloric ingestion and your substance ingestion inside a window of 12 hours, that's, um, that's the minimum objective. And of course, having these uh, 16-hour fasting periods, a uh, more narrow eating window uh, has been shown to deliver a lot of metabolic benefits as well. So if you uh, don't eat your first meal till 12 noon, and then you stop eating at 8 p.m., you're achieving a 16-hour fast and your time-restricted eating window is well under the uh, minimum objective of 12 hours. Okay, so I hope I'm not confusing you with throwing these backwards and forwards, 16-hour fast, 8-hour eating window. Uh, But the main thing is to be cognizant of the fact that if you had a sip of coffee at 6.30 a.m., that means ideally you will stop ingesting anything except water by 6.30 p.m. Oh, all of a sudden... Uh, a whole bunch of people are getting a light bulb turned on going, whoa, I actually don't do that because I do have a little sip of coffee and then I have two squares of dark chocolate at 9.30 every night. And wow, that's way outside of the 12-hour feeding window. So just something to uh, pay attention to seemingly has a lot of health benefits, especially for people that are trying to drop excess body fat. If you tighten up those eating windows, uh, Dr. Panda's research with the rats is showing profound improvement in metabolic function simply by tightening up the eating window, not eating any fewer calories or uh, changing diet in any other way. It's that we want our digestive systems to turn off at night so we can engage in cellular repair, hormonal restoration. And when we're throwing food down uh, late into those evening hours, we're messing with it. Interesting. And also on the morning side, uh, Dr. Penn is talking about how 
If you do wake up the digestive system, again, it doesn't have to be calories. It could be herbal tea, coffee, whatever. Um, it's kind of helping to send the message to your entire uh, system, hormonal functions, that it's time to wake up and get energy. So you've been sleeping all night, and now you want to wake up, and you have an herbal tea, and it sends you into a different metabolic state thanks to turning on the digestive circadian clock and triggering some hormones that'll get you uh, going and feeling alert and energized. And this is of particular interest to me because sometimes when I'm uh, pushing it with those challenging workouts, um, the, the next day I wake up, I don't feel so peppy. You know, I like to feel absolutely refreshed and energized waking up with an, uh, without an alarm every single day. That's been my goal in life since back when I was an athlete many years ago. And if I feel a little bit tired, groggy, uh, that's not my that, that's not my favorite thing. I don't think it is for anybody. Um, I'm not inclined to go slam down a bunch of coffee to override those natural sensations of fatigue, but I want to do everything possible in a natural way to optimize my morning experience and my morning energy levels. So exposing myself to uh, fresh air and direct sunlight right away is a good one. And now I'm turning on the digestive circadian clock with uh, an ingestion of water mixed with kombucha. So if it's just water, this is outside of the rules of that 12-hour window because water is not xenobiotic. It's part of the body and it will not count toward this digestive circadian clock, nor will it turn on the clock in the morning. But even something as simple as herbal tea or a couple of uh, vitamin D pills or whatever you're swallowing uh, is enough to turn on the clock. So I've been fooling around with that where I'm always getting something in first thing in the morning uh, low-calorie kombucha that I make myself at home. It's super awesome, super fun. Look at some pictures on Instagram. I'm going to town on this stuff and saving all that money on the expensive kombucha that they sell in the store. And also, I didn't realize this until I got into kombucha making. That stuff you buy in the store that tastes delicious and has that nice fizz, that carbonation that gives you that soft drink fix and the beautiful, delicious flavors of many kinds from grape to pomegranate to lemon to cherry... Uh, those are kind of after the fact added in the carbonation as well as the flavoring. That's why when you look at the label, it has in many cases a significant level of carbohydrates on that on that label to the extent that some of those kombucha flavors are up there in the category of vitamin water and Gatorade and the other offensive drinks. So choose your uh, flavors carefully. I think Kavita makes one called lemon cayenne that only has uh, five calories per serving. So is that right? Five grams or five calories? I don't know, but it's vastly lower than the other flavors that you see of Kavita, Kavita and also uh, the other brands of kombucha are pretty sugary, um, but that's not part of the fermentation process. That's an after the fact, adding back some sugar to make it taste good. So when you make your kombucha at home and you start with uh, a very sweet black tea preparation where I'm putting in six bags of black tea per gallon and almost a cup of raw sugar per gallon. Uh, you taste it, it's very, very sweet. And then 11 days later, after the SCOBY works its magic, that's the growth that you put in there, the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. That's why it's called SCOBY. 11 days later, you taste it and it has that interesting, distinctive uh, kombucha taste that is not sweet at all because the SCOBY has done its job eating the caffeine and the sugar uh, and turned it into uh, healthy probiotics. So 
it's not that flavorful until you add a second fermentation of flavor where you can drip back in. I like to do uh, lemons and limes. Maybe sometimes I'll mess around with vanilla or spicy herbal good earth tea and then let, let that ferment for a couple few days. And then I'll get a flavorful drink, but the sugar content is pretty low because I'm allowing even the new sugar to come in and ferment with the probiotics that are in there. So big difference from the store-bought stuff. Uh, consider uh, getting into this yourself, making your own kombucha at home. Wow, listen to all these asides on the podcast. Are we still live? Should I check? Hi. Hi, cop. Hi, golf bag. Okay. Um, back into some, maybe some real tra- training questions since I've been going off on tangents. And this one comes from Charles59140, 42 years old, ex-runner with a 124 half marathon very nice and speedy. That's uh, 630s or something very, very impressive. Now, that was seven years ago. So let's see, he was 30, uh, 36, 35. And now I'm fully keto, been that way for two months. I just registered a 2.9 millimole uh, measurement after my seven-mile run this morning. So I'm really getting back into the swing of things. I'm not in great running condition. I don't have a good base. So I do lots of walking. And on my run this morning... I was in a fasted state and my heart rate was up in the 160s the entire time. I averaged 1130 per mile and my blood glucose was 89 with ketones at 2.9. Okay, so he was burning up in the sugar burning heart rates uh, going slowly compared to his PR, right? So he's, he's showing that he's out of shape. Um, but still with that high ketone measurement afterward. I should just mention before I even ask his question, because I don't want to confuse you guys too bad. Uh, this is from Dr. D'Agostino when I talked to him in preparation for uh, working on the Keto Reset Diet book. He said that after you work out, if you wait whatever, an hour or two hours after a workout, that's commonly when you might find the highest levels of blood ketones. After Charles finished that run, the body still manufactured ketones furiously because it thinks it needs it if he's going to keep running. They don't know that he's going to stop running, so the liver's pumping out ketones because of his dietary restriction. He doesn't have a ton of uh, readily available glucose. His blood glucose is 89, nice and low, and a very healthy uh, normal level there for a ketogenic eater, but really getting those high levels of ketones and then not using them because he stopped his run. So if he tested his ketones maybe uh, at mile six of that seven-mile run, they probably would have been much lower because he was using them and burning them for fuel during the run. So let's get that distinction right about how he put up that huge number. It's the perfect circumstance of doing a depleting workout and then sitting around, of course, not eating carbs because if you reload with carbs, then your ketones are going to shut off as well. So now he has this really interesting question. I've never run a marathon, and I figured that since I'm in ketosis, I could run forever if I go slow enough. Is this true? The marathon is two months away, and I have a history of just blasting my runs and getting injured. This was before I went keto. I want to run slow enough to not get hurt, but maintain my sanity and not take forever. Does ketosis protect me somewhat from injury? Does a ketone level of 2.9 mean I can run anaerobically and my ketone level can keep up with the energy demands, although I know that isn't ideal. Okay, well, uh, that's a trippy question, isn't it, guys? The answer is no, no, and an emphatic no. You can't run forever just because you're in ketosis. 
Oh my gosh, good luck trying though. And this references my uh, recent attempt. Let's see, it was early this year, hanging with my friend, Dr. Stephen Cobrain, who likes to run 15 miles on his uh, long days in between uh, practicing medicine in the Central Valley. So he invites me down and I'm like, you know what? I've been sprinting. I've been jogging nicely at math heart rate, uh, running probably maximum five, six miles uh, on, my, on my runs, uh, maybe ranging from two or three miles to five or six miles for years and years. Haven't really gone out there and tried to do a long run, not having any endurance goals. But I said, well, I'm in great shape. I'll, let's go do it. I'll try it out. If we run slow enough, I should be fine. And I made it to mile seven and every muscle in my body at that point had cramped up my lower back, my hip flexors, my hamstrings, and I could barely shuffle back to his house while he continued on to do a second loop and put in twice as many miles. And it was an interesting awakening to the uh, dynamics and the natural laws of fitness that apply to all of us, that if you haven't run 15 miles in, let's say, 15 or 20 or 20 years, if I think back, yeah, it had been about 23 years since I'd run over, let's say, eight or nine miles. Um, so I had no preparation whatsoever for that. And of course, my body's not going to happen. It's not going to happen for me, even though I was very competent at sprinting and running at high speeds. Why shouldn't I be able to jog all day? Because I haven't jogged all day in a long time. So I don't care what kind of fuels in your bloodstream, you're not going to be able to just plod along and perform magically uh, because you're in ketosis. It has very little to do with it uh, at that level. Of course, it helps with uh, accessing and burning fat efficiently as you're going on preparing for uh, uh, sustained endurance activities. So as we just talked about in the last uh, exchange with David Lapp's questions and comments, the dietary transformation is really going to set you up nicely for success when you're going out there and performing. But oh, mercy. Uh, nothing, uh, nothing is magic here. It does not protect you from injury, uh, especially if you're running anaerobically, like you report with this morning run of seven miles going heart rate up in the one sixties, that part. Wow. That's interesting because, um, if you're in ketosis, is it going to make it easier to run at those sugar burning heart rates? Possibly. So I wonder if there's a lot of research on this, probably not. But again, the the uh, net stress impact of doing a heart rate 160 run when you're not in shape is going to be there no matter what. So your body's going to uh, have to recover from it afterward, probably experience some muscle soreness and all kinds of great stuff like that. <laughs> but yeah, good stuff. I like that critical thinking just to investigate. And I, the last line I wrote was, oh, you know what? Dr. Lindsay and I will investigate this further. It's fascinating. Okay, back to Paul. Maybe we'll get a little more simple, simple questions coming up or just some more straightforward answers. Uh, Paul's 53. Yo, welcome to the 53, man. 53s, what's up? 53. Since turning 50, I've adopted the primal, and primal endurance and math approach along with a keto and primal diet. Congratulations, Paul. You are doing your best to delay the aging process that you are spinning into at an accelerated rate throughout your 20s and 40s. It's never too late to turn things around, get healthier, go read Deepak Chopra's wonderful book, Ageless Body, Timeless Mind, a bestseller back from the early 90s, where he talks about the fact that in a quantum physical perspective, proven by science, 
that we are literally nothing more than a swirling mass of atoms constantly regenerating and completely connected to the surrounding environment, the trees, the grass, the sun. We're all one, man. We're all together. But from that, um, from that scientific perspective, which Chopra does a great job weaving in the, uh, the validated science with his uh, woo-woo principles, um, we literally manufacture a new stomach lining every two weeks or something like that, not positive. We literally manufacture a new set of lungs from a molecular perspective every couple months and so on throughout the body and new muscle tissue and new eyeballs and new skeleton uh, because the atoms are constantly recirculating, we're eating food, we're burning energy, we're making new cells. Fascinating concept. And so I reference it at this point because if we want to delay the aging process and we stop smoking today and start exercising and stop consuming the refined high polyunsaturated vegetable oils that inflict oxidative damage at the DNA level to the cells throughout your body as soon as they're ingested, you are going to do a wonderful service to yourself to delay the aging process and improve your prospects for the future, even if you've been eating that crap your whole life because you just tuned in Facebook Live and found out that stuff's bad for you. Yeah. Anyway, guess what? Paul recently had his telomeres tested. The telomeres are the little extensions on the cell that science is now showing can be examined under a microscope, and the length of your telomeres is highly predicted with your highly predictive of your lifespan. So if you have nice long telomeres, little tails sticking out that you can see in the mic, uh, microscope, uh, it looks like things are good and you haven't sustained a lot of uh, damage or accelerated cell division that happens when we're engaged in adverse lifestyle practices like eating bad food, overtraining, not exercising enough, having too much stress, and the cells are uh, suffering accordingly. And now you have a measurement stick to measure it. So this is the breaking science of uh, bio-testing. And I don't know much about it myself. It's very fascinating to think that you can go under a microscope and see how you're doing. Uh, ben Greenfield, the ultimate biohacker of the planet, who's all deep into this stuff and uh, has, has engaged in extensive uh, testing and treatments himself to extend or preserve his telomere length. So he's going getting these injections. I think they're doing a painful process where they're taking out his bone marrow and re-injecting it. You can hear him talk about this stuff uh, on his epic appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast, where he's talking about the cutting edge of health and fitness science. Anyway, he's trying to extend his telomere length and his preliminary results are quite impressive because uh, when he first went in there and got tested, his uh, biological age as determined by his telomeres was uh, around the same or like a year older than his actual age. He, was, uh, he had a biological age of 37 and he was only 36 years old. And then the next time he went in there after doing a bunch of treatments and health practices and supplements, uh, his biological age was revealed to be 20 instead of 37. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, but here's the deal with Paul. I had my telomeres tested and I find that I'm biologically about 13, year old, 13 years older than my chronological age. Yikes, he says. Do you or other former black holers have any experience with telomere testing? I've seen some scientific literature that suggests that high-intensity athletes may have shorter tissue-specific telomeres than moderate exercisers. 
This paper says, quote, several lines of evidence in both immune cells and skeletal muscle indicate that telomeres may actually shorten in response to long-term high-intensity endurance training. And there's a link to PubMed. I will test again in five years or so. Maybe you should do it in five weeks like Ben Greenfield and go get his bone marrow recirculating injections or whatever. I will test again in five years, Paul says, and hope for the primal best. What are my chances of growing younger? And I wrote him back and said, hey, man, that's disturbing news. Who wants to be 13 years older than their, uh, their actual chronological age? Jeez. Uh, and then I talked about the idea that your body can regenerate and rejuvenate and arrest the aging, aging process very nicely, um, especially when you engage in strength training as you get into the advancing decades and you're in your 50s, perfect time to, to upregulate your strength training commitment and of course, by all means, stay away from chronic patterns, especially as you get older. I did a show where I talked uh, extensively. Uh, I posed the question that uh, endurance training uh, of any extreme nature, like ultra efforts, half Ironman or above, uh, marathon or above for runners, maybe they're not even healthy for people over age 50 due to the number on their birth date. Are you getting me? Maybe when you're 20, 30, 40 and you're training properly and you're monitoring your math heart rate and you're going out there and you want to do a 50K or a 50 miler or hit that bucket list of completing an Ironman or any other crazy thing, uh, you know, you're a fit person. You do it right. You're going to minimize the damage. It's not going to be super healthy to go run a 50 or 100 miler. That's absolutely unequivocally true. And you're probably better off being a guy who walks around the park with his dog and goes to the gym a couple days a week uh, and, and has a more um, broad-based and moderate approach to fitness. But it's also important to stimulate the mind and pursue peak performance goals. Um, I favor the shorter, more intense stuff for anyone, but that's just my personal opinion looking back at my endurance experience and realizing just how destructive that was to my health. So especially as we get older, we cannot fool around like we could in our younger days, as you know, because you were a roadie for Pearl Jam for seven years and you never slept and you did drugs and you went crazy and you partied all around the world and you lived to tell about it. But go try and be, go try to be a roadie from age 50 to 57. It's not going to work out as well as age 20 to 27. So let's put that roadie example, that crazy party and rock star example into the endurance uh, context because it is the very same thing. And I might as well have been a roadie for Pearl Jam from age 20 to age 30 when I was traveling around the world racing on the professional circuit. The only time I crossed paths uh, with this example was flying to Australia with the band Skid Row on my flight, Sebastian Bach. That's why I love that song, Slave to the Grind. This guy was a full-on rock star, man. We landed after whatever that flight was, a 15-hour flight. Everyone's exhausted. The sun's up. You wonder where you are. And I remember this guy getting out into the lineup for customs, and he was cranking that air guitar. And this was before he was uh, into stardom. This was in the early 90s. And I'm like, whoever that dude is, that guy's got the magic. Because if he can do air guitar and rock and roll right now after a transcontinental flight... I think he's got it in him. That was Sebastian Bach, the rock and roll lead singer of Skid Row. Oh my goodness. But in any case, I'm making that strong analogy between burning the candle at both ends when you're a young person through whatever your passionate endeavors are that are a little extreme and then trying to recalibrate and make up for it 
<laughs> for the rest of your life. So wonderful news, Paul, that you're trying to make up for it. Yes, I have a strong opinion, a strong uh, uh, suspicion that you'll test much, much better after you allow yourself to continue, especially on the clean eating path and especially on the moderate endurance training, maybe throwing in some strength training uh, and getting away from that overly stressful lifestyle pattern. Um, and that's pretty much all I wrote to him in writing. And um, wow, good luck to you. And then finally, geez, what I should also say is like, look, whatever those guys say on a piece of paper, I'm not going to put you know my, my heart and soul stock into that. We don't know how accurate this testing is. Oh my goodness, it could be you know just a shot in the dark. Probably not if they're to market and they're having a scientific board behind them and supporting this telomere testing. But I'm still not going to make anything, any number on a piece of paper the end all. I'm going to talk about how we feel, uh, our disposition, our fitness level. At certain case, can you, you know, support your body weight for a few pull-ups, a few push-ups? Can you uh, walk five miles without stopping? These critical benchmarks are vastly more important than uh, some number that you get from a scientific test in a lab, right? Okay. And speaking of that, uh, the Aerobics Institute in Texas, very unique and complex test to predict longevity uh, with great accuracy and published research uh, contending to this. And the test is the one-mile run. How about that? No wires attached to your chest, no oxygen math mask, you go out there and you do the mile as fast as you can. And at age 50, your finishing time in the one mile run is highly predictive of your chances of living to age 80 and beyond. And the benchmarks that they mentioned in the research study from the Aerobics Institute in Dallas, Texas, is that if you're a male and you can break eight minutes in the mile at age 50, and if you're a female and you can break nine minutes in the mile at age 50, you are in the top percentile with excellent longevity prospects. If you are a male and you cannot break 12 minutes in the mile or a female who cannot break 13 minutes in the mile, this puts you in the at-risk category so that you have poor longevity because you don't uh, maintain that basic level of fitness. And again, this is an all-out effort <laughs> for all the money for to get on the podium. Uh, so it's something that you might not be a runner and you might not think that uh, this is your best event. You'd rather have a test for how much you can bench press. But they're saying that anyone who has that basic cardiovascular competency should be able to get around the track four laps in under 12 minutes, under 13 minutes. And it, says it's, uh, it sounds easy for us listening who are in the endurance community but that's a pretty tall order. I mean, that's a pretty uh, respectable time. When you consider that a brisk walk is a 15-minute mile, uh, running a 12 means that you got to be in kind of pretty good shape. I'll bet you most people who can finish the uh, ladies' boot camp class and the, uh, the, the Roomba dance class can probably go bang out a 13-minute mile at age 50. So anyone who has a minimal commitment to uh, uh, gym classes or fitness, uh, getting out there and doing their walks, uh, especially, of course, if you're a jogger or you're a performer in the endurance scene, this is going to be a piece of cake. But wow, it's nice to know that the mile run is right up there as one of the ultimate predictors of longevity, better than the blood testing or the genetic testing or the telomere length testing, or at least in concert with that. So Paul can take stock in the fact that even if he was overdoing it in his 20s through 40s, he established a fantastic fitness base 
uh, for that lasts for a lifetime. And then he can leverage that over the next uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years where he's doing things that are more sensible. How's that, everybody? Thanks for listening. And I will throw this at you again. Maybe I'll give you a warning next time so we can get more questions popping up. Talk to you soon. Hi, listeners. It's Brad Kearns. I'm so excited to introduce you to our all-new comprehensive online multimedia course called the 21-Day Primal Reset. This is everything you need to go step-by-step into a lifestyle transformation and go primal. Go all in. Make the commitment. We are here with an amazing online course with over 60 videos taking you through step-by-step daily challenges in the areas of diet, exercise, and lifestyle. You also get to download an assortment of print and audio materials. We have an awesome app that helps you engage with the community while you're doing your 21-day reset, daily inspirational emails, keeping you focused, giving you tips and tricks. We have shopping list PDFs, Oh, it's a great collection of items all on the login portal. As soon as you register, instant and lifetime access, everything you need. What a great gift to give someone, family, friend, loved one that you want to share the gift of primal living with. And even if you're an expert long term, what a great way to kind of tune up and get that reset going, build some momentum. If your goals are reducing excess body fat, being healthy and staying with the primal program for the rest of your life. That's what this journey is, is a kickstart to generate long-term lasting lifestyle change. And when you enroll at primalblueprint.com, we have a wonderful selection of add-on product kits at an extreme discount to thank you for enrolling in the digital course. So you can throw in some wonderful Primal Kitchen products or Primal Blueprint supplements. Check it all out at primalblueprint.com. Everyone deserves a reset. You deserve a reset. Make the commitment for 21 days and we'll be with you every step of the way to guide you.